Bibles to Judges chapter 3. We're going to read verses 7 to 11. So it's Judges chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. And so we are continuing our series, and today we're getting finally getting to the Judges, because there's two introductions and two conclusions, and in the middle of that are these six major Judges and six minor. Othniel's the major, and so it's only, he's only major because of the length of time spent in the book on him. Some of the, some of the guys, you'll just get just a sentence or a name thrown there, so that's, that's why we call them major. Um, the amount of detail we get. So let's read it, and we'll pray, and we'll jump into this. <clears throat> Hear God's word. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given in love. Let's, let's pray. Now, Father, we pray the words of Psalm 85 this morning that uh, won't you revive us again to give us a fresh start so that we, your people, can laugh and sing and rejoice in your abundant goodness to us. So show us this morning how much we are loved by Jesus. And we ask that your spirit would come and help us drink deeply from the wells of salvation to help us listen carefully to your voice. And so we are prone to wander, and I pray you would bind our wandering ways to Jesus so that his faithfulness and righteousness would fight on our behalf. So Lord, don't let us get bored this morning with who Jesus is. We pray this in his name. Amen. So what do you do when you find yourself being told over and over again that Jesus loves me and you realize it's having no effect? Right? We sang this morning, Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise for the mercy I found. What do you do when you're no longer weeping? What do you do when you're no longer moved by who God says he is? When he says, I love you. Right? When you're moved to boredom rather than to, to rejoicing. A lady named Luma Sims has this book called Gospel Amnesia. Um, and Luma is from the, the ancient land of Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. And she says she was a follower of Jesus since she was eight years old. She's from California. She studied law before uh, becoming a stay-at-home mom. But listen to her honest confession as she wrestles with this idea that she's just bored with Jesus. She said, I used to be a Christian who did not think about Jesus. I used to be a Christian who was bored with Jesus. I remember telling my husband one day that I was tired of him telling me, Jesus loves you, Luma. 
It all seemed trite and superficial. I wanted, I needed something deeper. Something more challenging than Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Is this where you're at? (laughs) Being tired of every week is what we say in different ways. Jesus loves you. I have one sermon. It's the same thing, just packaged in a different way. You get to the point where you say, it has no effect on me. It's too simple. It's it's boring. And I think this is what happens to every Christian at some point. This is where Judges helps us is every generation has to go through revival. We start out with this initial explosion of joy that I can't believe God would love me, a sinner, and it bursts into your life like a dam that has burst. But you can find yourself five to ten years later uh, where that river of joy is now just dwindled down to a trickle of I'm just going through the routine. It's like the honeymoon stage in a marriage. And eventually that white-hot passion seems to fizzle and what do you do when that happens spiritually? And so that, that's where we are in our text is this next generation has become bored with the good news that Yahweh loves them and they have wandered away. They've forgotten him. They know about him, but they are looking for satisfaction from Monday through Saturday from everything else but Yahweh. They got tired and bored with their God. They wandered away. They, they're in a covenant of marriage, but they're actively pursuing and looking for other lovers. That's what we talked about with the Baals and Asheroth last week. Um, it was pagan worship that led them to worship their career, their comfort, their success, and sex and romance and all those things in ancient pagan ways. And so here in our passage, right, their spiritual adultery, like in every good marriage, it ticked off God. And so he gave them up to their heart's desire. They found themselves under oppression, under this king named Cushan Rishathayim. And it took them eight years to wake up again, to remember to call out, not just in complaining, but to call out to the Lord. And so we're left with who's going to revive them, who's going to rescue them. And it's the same question for you and I who's going to revive and rescue us when we get bored? And so Othniel is going to help us do that this morning. And so let's, let's look at Othniel. He is the first judge. He is the spirit-filled judge. And I know at first glance it seems like how can you get a, a sermon out of just these five verses? Because it's not that dramatic, right? Nobody's getting their head smashed in. There's no uh, overly large king getting stabbed in the gut. No lions being torn apart. It's just Othniel rescued God's people. But it's intentional because the the book of Judges, I'm going to start by just showing you some of how the story works. The book of Judges is written literarily to show you the chaos that sin sin causes. So Othniel, he's the pattern of how God is going to rescue his people. You'll see that pattern repeated throughout each judge. There are, I think, seven different parts of that pattern you can find here. And the further you get into the story, the less of a pattern you get, and it moves from order to chaos. And so Othniel is from the tribe of Judah. And this is how chapter 1 started. Judah does things, you know, they're not perfect, but they're, they're obedient. And then you move north, and you get increasing chaos of unbelief with the rest of the nation. Well, this is the same pattern. You got the judge in Judah who 
seemingly has just a well-ordered salvation. By the time you get to Samson, Samson's got to die for God's people's sin, and it's just absolute chaos. And when you get to the very end of the book, there's no one ruling and reigning. It's a mess. And so the way the story is told is to, to prepare you, right? Othniel is ordered. It's structured. It's going to slowly disintegrate and fall apart. It's the same trajectory. I mean, it's going to be so bad in Israel that Samson can't even find a God-fearing Israelite that he has to go to a, a Philistine to find a wife. And so this is the pattern that we're going to see. And so I think if you were to make Judges into a Netflix series, right, you've got the first episode is rated G, and then it starts to become PG in the next episodes. And by the time you get to the very end of the story, um, you've moved into our mature audience only, maybe not appropriate for anybody. <laughs> and all of that mess is rooted in the one simple fact that Israel got bored with God. They forgot him. They did evil. They forgot the Lord their God and started serving other things than the God who made them. And it was, it was actually something that God warned them would happen. They're, they're, they're comfortable. And God says, when you're comfortable, then you, th be warned that when you're comfortable, you're going to be tempted to wander away. Listen to Deuteronomy 8, chapter 11. Or chapter 8, verse 11. This is God telling them to prepare. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, lest when you have eaten and are full and have good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart's going to be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who, who loved you in the wilderness, protected you from fiery serpents, who fed you water from a rock, who fed you food in the desert. Beware that you don't forget and you say in your heart, I did this on my own, by my own power and strength. Remember the Lord your God. <laughs> God knows his people. See, Israel's problem, if you start to fill in some of the gaps, is their middle class and spirit. Now that God's given them a place to live, they're comfortable, but they've lost their first love. They've forgotten their first love. The honeymoon stage is over, and now they're out wandering around, wandering away, self-destructively. And the good, news, the good bad news of the passage is that God is a jealous lover. His love is as fierce as the grave, and he gives them up to this guy named Cushan Rishathayim from the land of Aram, Naharayim, in the ESV, it says it's from the king of Mesopotamia. And he is God's instrument to woo Israel back, to say, you need me. All right. And so here's some details that will help fill in the story. Cushion Rishathiah means this guy named King Cushion, double, double wickedness. So this is the name that Israel gave this king. Right? This is not a self-proclaimed title. He's from the land of Aram. He's in northern Mesopotamia, so... Right, this is fifth grade geography again. Remember Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent? and the, He's from the land of two rivers, the Euphrates and another river. So it's just north of Israel. And he came down and enslaved the people of Israel. But the point is, he's so bad that the, the oppressed Israelites gave him a nickname. They're making fun of him. He is King Superbad. Right? He's doubly bad. This guy, this guy really stinks. We hate that guy. 
You remember the, the, <laughs> the double mint gum commercials? Double the pleasure, double your fun. This is like the opposite of that. Double the misery, double the oppression. Hate that guy. And so it's just a subtle Hebrew pun. Right? They have a sense of humor after the fact. They're, make, they're, mock, they're using mocking to say, why would we ever want to serve a guy who is doubly evil and serve him in place of the, the Lord who loves us? Yet yeah, that's what sin leads us to do. So Israel has wandered away. They've forgotten the Lord. They're bored with his, his love. For eight years, they suffered under Cushion Rishathayim, double king super bad. For eight years, they refused to ask for help. For eight years, they chose shame and misery. They're too ashamed to ask for help. And it seems like it takes eight years to finally just stop crying and then finally cry out directionally to turn their back and turn around and face God and say, okay, I can't fix this. I need your help. And this is where we all have to get when you're bored with God's love. You have to have, you have to despise your shame and say, I need help. Go back to Luma Sims, for example. She says, I've been a Christian since I was eight. And most of my life has been spent finding one way or another to atone for myself. Operating from a a hazy understanding of what Jesus did for me in his life and death to gain my resurrection, this self-atonement, the self-salvation project, was like a vortex, a downward spiral into the depths of my amnesia. I wanted to be godly, and I thought I had a pretty good idea how to go about it. But the harder I tried to approximate the image in my head of what a godly woman was supposed to be like, the worse my depression grew. The panic attacks came, the rage showed up. I poisoned our household with anger and my holy laws. Down I went like a dragon falling from the sky with blood and fire spilling everywhere contaminating everything in its path all because she forgot the Lord who loves her and ironically she says the harder I tried to fix it the worse I got it was like a poison I was trapped doubly wicked so who's going to revive us and that's where Othniel steps in this is God seeing his people bored with his love sinfully wandering away from him and every generation is going to have God raise up a judge and the first one is Othniel but my count, as we start I think this is what's really helpful and what Luma Sims helps us with that if you're bored with the idea that Jesus loves you you got to start by saying that out loud not just to yourself to the Lord who loves you and to, to someone else because that is part of the process of rescue, of saying, I can't rescue myself. I need help. I need revival. I need renewal. And God raises up people to show you, to help you see that. Now, Othniel, here's what he does. He shows us what a judge is. A judge, there's three parts. A judge is a savior. The spirit of the Lord comes upon the judge. And then he goes out and judges Israel, but meaning he goes out and fights Israel's wars for them. So he's a warrior. He's a savior. He's a spirit-empowered savior. He's a spirit-empowered warrior savior. And that's every single judge. You're going to see this pattern. Some will have more, some will have less. But 
these judges, these saviors, they're little pictures of what Jesus is like. We're not the savior. We're Israel here. We need saved. (laughs) We need a judge to come and wake us up to see that we're like Israel. And so you're going to see the Spirit of the Lord come upon these judges, and they're going to do things that you might think are odd. But the Spirit comes and empowers these people to rescue God's loved ones. The Spirit comes on Othniel. He'll come on Gideon. He'll come on Jephthah. He'll come on Samson again and again. Samson gets the most spirit out of any judge. So we should see that God is with them. And so our first judge, Othniel. Othniel is sent by God to rescue God's people, to be obedient for them, fighting their battles, to save them from themselves. And that's, that's what judges, that's what Othniel's going to do. So, you have these details in your head. Who is Othniel? All right. the first, that's the point number two. Othniel, we have a flashback in chapter one. So before we get a few more details about this guy. It's going to help fill in the picture for us. Othniel is, is first a warrior who fights for a bride. He's the bridegroom. We're told he's from Judah. We don't hear anything bad about him. He's just, he's just Othniel. He's a savior that God raises up. But then from chapter 1, if you'll turn back with me to verses 11 to 15, there's a story. It's a flashback story. It's taken straight out of Joshua and plugged in here. And so we have a story that's told twice, which you know, if God repeats something, we should pay attention. And so we get a flashback to get a glimpse of Othniel's character. And so I'll read 11 to 15. It says, From there they went against, this is the tribe of Judah, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was former Kiriath, formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb says, said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captured it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. It seems like such a random story, but it's it's here to introduce you to Othniel, and Othniel is going to show you how this points to Jesus. So just this is this is important. It's going to give you a beautiful picture of the gospel. And I know when we, at first glance, you have a picture of a, a hero going to fight for a bride. That's not how we do these things anymore, right? We don't, the, when you go and talk to the father, future father-in-law, he doesn't say, I want you to go conquer a city to prove your worth. Right? We've lowered the bar to, you know, have a job, be able to provide for her. But I know as modern Westerners, <laughs> it's, it can seem like Axa is just a piece of property being passed from father to, uh, to, from man to man. And uh, to quote Jasmine from Aladdin, how dare you? <laughs> All of you standing around deciding my future. I'm not a prize to be won. <laughs> that's not what they would have said back then. That's, that's a, an American Jasmine. <laughs> 
But here's what I want you to see. Axa is not being demeaned. She's not being dehumanized. She's not being a piece of meat passed from man to man. Caleb and Othniel are honoring her in ways that our pornified culture does not honor women. You're supposed to see Othniel caring for God, for a woman in ways that Israel will not at the end. Here he is caring and providing for a woman. At the end, you have Israel forcing women into marriage against their will. Axa is being honored. Her name means she's, her main name means an ankle bracelet. She's a, a type of jewelry. It's, a, it's her father' way of saying you're you're a beautiful jewel in my eyes. She's daddy's jewel being given to a warrior king. And Othniel is going to go fight for her. She would be honored by this. And she actually would have had a say in whether or not this is okay. I mean, the biblical picture of marriage. You know, we say if we love each other, you have two people make the decision, that's all that matters, it's love that makes the relationship. In the biblical times, the woman was involved in the process. Just, you can go back and read Genesis 24 in your own time. When Abraham sends a servant to find Isaac a wife, the servant goes and meets Rebekah, and he doesn't kidnap her. He goes back and talks to the dad, and the dad asks Rebekah, are you willing to go? And she says, I am willing. I'm willing to go. I will marry this man. And so the point is, is in the culture, Axa is not this helpless person being dragged along against her will. She would have said to her father, I'm willing to, to be a part of this. She is willing to marry the man who would, who would win land for them to live in rest together. And so Othniel goes to war. The town of Debir is conquered. The land is given back to the father. As the dowry. At the wedding day, the, the land would then be given to Othniel and Axa together. And so Axa becomes a landowner through marriage. She's being honored here. She's given a part in the inheritance. And then, because she's been given land in the desert, <laughs> she says, well, we've got we to gotta work on that. We can't farm and survive in the desert. Let's go talk to Dad. Othniel, you do it. But then she's the one who's on the donkey doing all the hard work. Right? She, she rides the donkey, she dismounts, she gets off and she talks to her dad and says, give me a blessing, and he blesses her with, with springs of water. And it's, it's a humble ask. If you ride on a donkey and stay on the donkey, you're, you're, you're saying, this is mine, I, I deserve this. If you get off the donkey, in biblical times, it's, a, it's an act of humility. I help you picture Jesus. When he rides a donkey into Jerusalem, he's saying, this is mine. So, Caleb responds. He blesses them that they might enjoy rest, have springs of water, be able to live together, um, turn the dry desert into the thirsty ground into a place of garden-like growth so that they can live happily ever after. And it's just a picture. Here's Othniel. What kind of guy is he? He's the kind of guy who faithfully goes to war at the risk of his life to win himself a bride, to then give a, have a land to dwell together with. It's the same picture as Jesus. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, goes to war to fight for us, to set us free from sin, to win us as a bride, and then he gives the kingdom back to the Father, and the Father then gives the new creation and new heavens and earth to us to dwell with Jesus forever. Springs of water bubbling up in the desert, making all things new again. 
we get to taste what uh, this kind of Othniel-like love from Jesus. It's pretty astounding. These are foreign pictures, but the pet, it's setting you up for what Jesus would do. Jesus is the faithful bridegroom who fights for his, God's people. So, Jesus loves me is telling you you have a warrior king who is tough, who can slay our enemies of sin and Satan to death, but he does so not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. He is a tough warrior king, but he's also tender. He does so to woo and win back his bride, to heal our unfaithfulness. That's Othniel the bridegroom, which sets you up because there's more. When you get back to 3, 7 to 11, you get to see what Othniel's like. You have the Othniel, the faithful, valiant, bridegroom warrior from the tribe of Judah. In chapter 1, he's raised up to fight for a bride, a, a faithful bride, a virgin bride, someone he's going to delight in who could be his jewel, his sparkly bangle. Right. Now Othniel is sent, I want you to go rescue God's unfaithful bride. And that's the beauty of this passage. Right, look at 3.9. It says, When Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel. And you don't know if it's God who's doing the saving or Othniel, and I think it's supposed to be deliberately ambiguous to say it's both. That Othniel is God's warrior king raised up to go fight for God's unfaithful bride, Israel. And the Spirit equips him for the battle. He takes the victory, and God's people dwell in a land at rest with no war. That's how the Lord saves, which is the gospel. It's the good news. God woos back Israel. He is always faithful to his covenant vows, even when, when we wander away in sin. Then when God's people get bored with him, who yawn at his otherworldly love and his faithfulness, God raises up deliverers to woo us back. And the problem with Israel is, it doesn't say they had rest. It doesn't say that they enjoyed God's covenant love here. We know from the, what we learned earlier, um, their hearts were still with their other lovers, even though God was with them. And so, we need something better than what the people of Israel had. We have Jesus, the true and better Othniel, who comes to rescue us, to go after the affections of our heart. It's, it's one thing to say, I love you, you are beautiful in my eyes, I want to live forever with you. It's another thing to say that same thing to someone who has absolutely crushed your heart because they have wandered astray. To say, I love you, you are beautiful, you are my bride. You, I want you to, you are a beautiful jewel in my eyes despite your unfaithfulness. Isaiah picks up on this pattern when you read Isaiah 62, when Isaiah has been unfaithful. That's the whole message of Isaiah. It's ugly. And then God says to unfaithful Israel, the day will come when you will be a crown of beauty, an AXA-type beauty in the hand of the Lord. You'll be a royal diadem in the hand of your God, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
It's a, it's a simple deliverance, but it's so profound that God would chase you down when you're wandering in the other direction. And he does so by sending Jesus, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life, armed for battle with the Holy Spirit. And it, the Holy Spirit equipped him, empowered him to go to the cross. That Christ, through the eternal spirit, says the writer to the Hebrews, he offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, which is another way of saying Jesus was raised up as the, the beautiful, true, and better Othniel. And even that act of salvation, Jesus had help. He had the humility to say, I need the Holy Spirit to carry me through the cross, to be faithful to us. So, it's a lot of information. Part of that is just because I've been sitting on this for too long. <laughs> but part of that is intentional. It's all in here in the text where it's trying to get you to turn from your double wickedness so that you would return in faithfulness and re receive God's double blessing, the blessing of the Spirit, uh, the Spirit that God's love is poured upon you and you you recognize and realize, oh my gosh, God loves me. Even if I have wandered astray, I don't deserve this. And yet he still forgives that. God's unfaithful bride was rescued by Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was armed by the power of the Holy Spirit to deliver and rescue his bride so that we would love and serve our God. So you're left with that question, where, where, you, where are you? Who will revive us? Who will waken us up to, to rekindle our first love? And listen to how Luma Sims came to this realization. Remember, she spent, her, she spent much of her life just being bored by the simple idea that Jesus would die for her. And she said it causes a downward spiral circling the drain. And she says, at the end of hope, I hit rock bottom feeling and believing myself to be on the receiving end of the hot displeasure and disappointment of a holy God, I crashed. And then when there was nothing left of me, there was Jesus, the Savior, my Redeemer, and friend. No displeasure, no disappointment, just the blazing fire of unmerited grace. And then she says, Whoever we are, wherever our amnesic tendencies lie, wherever we are prone to forget our God, we need the white-hot fire of the gospel right now today when you hear his voice. Don't close your ears to the wonderful reality that Jesus loves you. This is how God raises up his people, but it's also, this is how God rekindles and renews and brings about revival among people who are bored with those simple words, Jesus loves me. He is more jealous for your affections than you are for his. And that's what starts to get our attention. That his jealousy is as fierce as the grave, as the song says in Song of Solomon. So fierce that he's willing to be crucified, dead, and buried to win your affections. So as the Song of Solomon would say, look to the wilderness, here comes your rescuer, your deliverer, your God, your groom, this Jesus, 
And in the Gospels, this Jesus comes out of the wilderness having done battle with temptation, with every test that Satan threw at him. Jesus, the faithful bridegroom, said no. He said no to self-preservation. He said no to self-glory. He said no to self-exaltation. All because those offers from Satan didn't include the bride, us. He was faithful to God. He was faithful to you. Jesus' desire is to dwell in a renewed creation (laughs) with people who would respond to his love and say, I want to spend eternity with you because your love is better than I can imagine. That's what you're supposed to see when you read the Gospels. King Jesus coming to rescue his bride, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem on, on Palm Sunday, going to war by laying down his life for you to wake, awaken your affections so that he might look at you, the unfaithful bride, as if you have always been faithful. That's what the gospel is going to take you. It's one thing to say, and Jim said it well, it's wonderful news when you're remembered. It's wonderful news when your, your, your covenant vows, your marriage vows are remembered. It's an even more wonderful thing when your unfaithfulness is forgotten. That God looks at his bride, his Israel, the church, you, me, through faith. Like a bridegroom looks at his bride on the wedding day. I mean, that is a, an otherworldly passion, an unashamed love. I got, we got to, I got to walk my sister down the aisle last summer. Uh, my brother on one arm and, and myself on the other. And part of the beauty of that is... I know the bridegroom wasn't looking at me when he teared up. <laughs> right? He's, Ty was looking at my sister, dressed in white, seeing no flaw in her, saying, I love you. And then he took vows to make that relationship, that look, permanent. And that's, that's what the gospel says to you and I. If you are in Christ, that is how God looks at his people, justified, and as if you had always been dressed in white. That's where, what Jesus came to do. This is Jesus' present tense, love for the church, his bride. And so if you believe that, how could you get bored with that kind of love? Right? I mean, wouldn't that change how you obey? <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure on, I mean, everyone could tell your story, but the first few weeks of marriage, it's not a chore to do what your spouse wants. If it is, right, you should come ask for help. <laughs> it's a rough start. Right? It transforms the way you want to love and serve because this person loves and delights in you. They know and see everything about you. And then the beauty of marriage is they actually get to know you and they still come back. I, I still love you. Even though there are flaws in you. <laughs> As humans, we, we experience that firsthand, but in the gospel, we have something different. Because that God is faithful you have these flaws, but he still looks at you with this delight. And his longing, his ache, his desire is to dwell with us in marriage in the new heavens and new earth, in a land where he can turn the desert into a, a fruitful place to live permanently. And so what do, you, what do you do to get this kind of love if you are feeling dry like a desert of saying, God, I know I, I, you tell me you love me like that, but I don't feel it. I'm going to say be like Axa. Get off your donkey. (laughs) Humble yourself. 
and go to your Father in heaven and say, bless me. And he will give you springs of water, except it's springs of living water, the Holy Spirit, whose job is to rekindle your affection for this Jesus and his delight and love in you. You've got to pray it. You've got to beg. You've got to ask. You've got to humble yourself and say, I don't feel this, Jesus. I need help. Satisfy me with your love, Jesus, like water in the desert. And because God is a loving Father, he loves to give double portions double the Holy Spirit. You're called to pray like that even as a Christian. May you know together with all the saints the height and depth, the length and width of what is the love of God in Christ for for you. And as you start to do that, you're being led down and God will raise you up. (laughs) He's going to rekindle your affections. And it may take a while. But the idea is when you think of King super bad, right? That's how you're supposed to look at these other competitions for Jesus' love. They aren't kind. They're cruel. You have to go to war and say, there is no one who will love me like Jesus, who knows all my flaws, who will stay with me all the same. And the beauty of our hope, this is how I want to end, our hope is the same as AXA. Because here's what Jesus does with his bride. This is Revelation 21. It's the same pattern here from Judges chapter 1. Jesus one day will put all things under his feet. All of our enemies will be defeated. There will be no more war. The land will have rest. Sorrow and sighing will have fled. Jesus will have, have up in heaven have given the kingdom to his father. And then the marriage supper of the lamb will happen. And, and the father as the bride will give the dowry to Jesus and his bride, and that, that, that gift on our wedding day to Jesus as the church. You know what that is? It's the new Jerusalem. It's the new heavens and earth. It's, it's, a, it's a new life without any sadness. Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed. And Jesus, sitting on the throne, says, Behold, I'm making all things new. He says, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the waters, the springs of the water of life, without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And so the picture is that this is our hope. You will be eternally satisfied with God's love. And you get a taste of it right now. And so the, the invitation is to ask Jesus for that springs of water that he paid the price for. The alternative is a portion in the lake of fire which is a poetic say, way of saying there is another water that just does not satisfy. It actually causes harm, which is anything other than God himself. So get off your donkey and ask for springs of living water. Run to Jesus, and you will have the Spirit say, your king, your warrior, your bridegroom, he loves you. May that bring you life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who paid the price to set us free, to give us rest, and I pray that would just 
grab a hold of the attention of our heart, that we would see how loved we are despite our unfaithfulness, and that would renew and revive our willingness to serve you. So use, use this time to fill us with your spirit so that we might drink deeply and week in and week out, keep coming back and saying, Jesus, that tasted good. Give me some more. <laughs> Tell me again of your great love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.